0: section eleven of a preface to politics by walter lippman this LibriVox recording is in the public domain chapter nine revolution and culture there is a legend of a peasant who lived near paris through the whole napoleonic era without ever having heard of the name of bonaparte A story of that kind is enough to make a man hesitate before he indulges in a flamboyant description of social changes. That peasant is more than a symbol of the privacy of human interest. He is a warning against the incurable romanticism which clings about the idea of a revolution. Popular history is deceptive if it is used to furnish a picture for coming events. Like drama, which compresses the tragedy of a lifetime into a unity of time, place, and action, history foreshortens an epoch into an episode. It gains in poignancy, but loses reality. Men grew from infancy to old age. Their children's children had married and loved and worked, while the social change we speak of as the Industrial Revolution was being consummated. That is why it is so difficult for living people to believe that they, too, are in the midst of great transformations. What looks to us like an incredible rush of events sloping towards a great historical crisis was, to our ancestors, little else than the occasional punctuation of daily life with an exciting incident. Even today, when we have begun to speak of our age as a transition— there are millions of people who live in an undisturbed routine. Even those of us who regard ourselves as active in mothering the process and alert in detecting its growth are by no means constantly aware of any great change, for even the fondest mother cannot watch her child grow. I remember how tremendously surprised I was in visiting Russia several years ago to find that in moscow or st petersburg men were interested in all sorts of things besides the revolution i had expected every russian to be absorbed in the struggle it seemed at first as if my notions of what a revolution ought to be were contradicted everywhere and i assure you it wrenched the imagination to see tiny nursemaids wheeling perambulators and children playing diavolo on the very square where Bloody Sunday had gone into history. It takes a long perspective, and no very vivid acquaintance with revolution, to be melodramatic about it. So much is left out of history and biography which would spoil the effect. The anticlimax is almost always omitted. Perhaps that is the reason why Arnold Bennett's description of the siege of Paris in The Old Wives' Tale is so disconcerting to many people. It is hard to believe that daily life continues with its stretches of boredom and its personal interests, even while the enemy is bombarding a city. How much more difficult is it to imagine a revolution that is to come, to space it properly through a long period of time, to conceive what it will be like to the people who live through it, Almost all social prediction is catastrophic and absurdly simplified. Even those who talk of the slow evolution of society are likely to think of it as a series of definite changes, easily marked and well known to everybody. It is what Bernard Shaw calls the reformer's habit of mistaking his private emotions for a public movement. EVEN THOUGH THE NEXT CENTURY IS FULL OF DRAMATIC EPISODES, THE COLLAPSE OF GOVERNMENTS AND LABOR WARS, THESE EVENTS WILL BEAT TO THE SOCIAL REVOLUTION WHAT THE SMASHING OF MACHINES IN LANCASHIRE WAS TO THE INDUSTRIAL REVOLUTION. THE REALITY THAT IS WORTHY OF ATTENTION IS A CHANGE IN THE VERY TEXTURE AND QUALITY OF MILLIONS OF LIVES, A CHANGE THAT WILL BE VIVIDLY PERCEPTIBLE ONLY IN THE RETROSPECT OF HISTORY. THE CONSERVATIVE OFTEN HAS A SHARP SENSE OF THE COMPLEXITY OF REVOLUTION. NOT DESIRING CHANGE, HE PREFERS TO EMPHASIZE ITS DIFFICULTIES, WHEREAS THE REFORMER IS ENTICED INTO A FAITH THAT THE INTENSITY OF DESIRE IS A MEASURE OF ITS SOCIAL EFFECT. YET JUST BECAUSE NO REFORM IS IN ITSELF A REVOLUTION, WE MUST NOT JUMP TO THE ASSURANCE THAT NO REVOLUTION CAN BE ACCOMPLISHED. True as it is that great changes are imperceptible, it is no less true that they are constantly taking place. Moreover, for the very reason that human life changes its quality so slowly, the panic over political proposals is childish. It is obvious, for instance, that the recall of judges will not revolutionize the national life. That is why the opposition generated will seem superstitious to the next generation. As I write, a convention of the Populist Party has just taken place. Eight delegates attended the meeting, which was held in a parlor. Even the reactionary press speaks in a kindly way about these men. Twenty years ago, the Populists were hated and feared as if they practiced black magic, WHAT THEY WANTED IS ON THE POINT OF REALIZATION. TO SOME OF US IT LOOKS LIKE A DROP IN THE BUCKET, A SLIGHT PART OF VASTLY GREATER PLANS. BUT HOW STUPID WAS THE FEAR OF POPULISM, WHAT UNIMAGINATIVE NONSENSE IT WAS TO SUPPOSE TWENTY YEARS AGO THAT THE PROGRAM WAS THE ROAD TO THE END OF THE WORLD. ONE GOOD DEED, OR ONE BAD ONE, IS NO MEASURE OF A MAN'S CHARACTER. The last judgment, let us hope, will be no series of decisions as simple as that. The soul survives its adventures, says Chesterton, with a splendid sense of justice. A country survives its legislation. That truth should not comfort the conservative nor depress the radical, for it means that public policy can enlarge its scope and increase its audacity can try big experiments without trembling too much over the result. This nation could enter upon the most radical experiments and could afford to fail in them. Mistakes do not affect us so deeply as we imagine. Our prophecies of change are subjective wishes or fears that never come to full realization. Those socialists are confused who think that a new era can begin by a general strike or an electoral victory. Their critics are just a bit more confused when they become hysterical over the prospect. Both of them overemphasize the importance of single events. Yet I do not wish to furnish the impression that crises are negligible. They are extremely important as symptoms, as milestones, and as instruments. It is simply that the reality of a revolution is not in a political decree or the scarehead of a newspaper, but in the experiences, feelings, habits of myriads of men. No one who watched the textile strike at Lawrence, Massachusetts, in the winter of nineteen twelve can forget the astounding effect it had on the complacency of the public very little was revealed that any well-informed social worker does not know as a commonplace about the mill population. The wretchedness and brutality of Lawrence conditions had been described in books and magazines and speeches, until radicals had begun to wonder at times whether the power of language wasn't exhausted. The response was discouragingly weak. An occasional government investigation— an impassioned protest from a few individuals, a placid charity, were about all that the middle-class public had to say about factory life. The cynical indifference of legislatures and the hypocrisy of the dominant parties were all that politics had to offer. The Lawrence strike touched the most impervious— Story after story came to our ears of hardened reporters who suddenly refused to misrepresent the strikers, of politicians aroused to action, of social workers become revolutionary. Daily conversation was shocked into some contact with realities. The newspapers actually printed facts about the situation of a working-class population. And why? The reason is not far to seek... The Lawrence strikers did something more than insist upon their wrongs. They showed a disposition to right them. That is what scared public opinion into some kind of truth-telling. So long as the poor are docile in their poverty, the rest of us are only too willing to satisfy our consciences by pitying them. But when the downtrodden gather into a threat, as they did at Lawrence when they show that they have no stake in civilization and consequently no respect for its institutions, when the object of pity becomes the avenger of its own miseries, then the middle-class public begins to look at the problem more intelligently. We are not civilized enough to meet an issue before it becomes acute. We were not intelligent enough to free the slaves peacefully. We are not intelligent enough today. TO MEET THE INDUSTRIAL PROBLEM BEFORE IT DEVELOPS A CRISIS. THAT IS THE HARD TRUTH OF THE MATTER. AND THAT IS WHY NO HONEST STUDENT OF POLITICS CAN PLEAD THAT SOCIAL MOVEMENTS SHOULD CONFINE THEMSELVES TO ARGUMENT AND DEBATE, ABANDONING THE MILITANCY OF THE STRIKE, THE INSURRECTION, THE STRATEGY OF SOCIAL CONFLICT. THOSE WHO DEPLORE THE USE OF FORCE IN THE LABOR STRUGGLE should ask themselves whether the ruling classes of a country could be depended upon to inaugurate a program of reconstruction which would abolish the barbarism that prevails in industry. Does anyone seriously believe that the business leaders, the makers of opinion, and the politicians will, on their own initiative, bring social questions to a solution? If they do, it will be for the first time in history The trivial plans they are introducing today, profit-sharing and welfare work, are on their own admission an attempt to quiet the unrest and ward off the menace of socialism. No, paternalism is not dependable, granting that it is desirable. It will do very little more than it feels compelled to do. Those who today bear the brunt of our evils dare not throw themselves upon the mercy of their masters, not though there are bread and circuses as a reward. From the groups upon whom the pressure is most direct must come the power to deal with it. We are not all immediately interested in all problems. Our attention wanders unless the people who are interested compel us to listen Social movements are at once the symptoms and the instruments of progress. Ignore them, and statesmanship is irrelevant. Fail to use them, and it is weak. Often in the course of these essays, I have quoted from H. G. Wells. I must do so again. Quote, Every party stands essentially for the interests and mental usages of some definite class or group of classes in the exciting community, AND EVERY PARTY HAS ITS SCIENTIFIC-MINDED AND CONSTRUCTIVE LEADING SECTION, WITH WELL-DEFINED HINTERLANDS FORMULATING ITS SOCIAL FUNCTIONS IN A PUBLIC-SPIRITED FORM, AND ITS SUPERFICIAL-MINDED FOLLOWING CONFESSING ITS MEANNESS AND VANITIES AND PREJUDICES. NO CLASS WILL ABOLISH ITSELF, MATERIALLY ALTER ITS WAY OF LIVING, OR DRASTICALLY RECONSTRUCT ITSELF, albeit no class is indisposed to cooperate in the unlimited socialization of any other class. In that capacity for aggression upon other classes lies the essential driving force of modern affairs. The truth of this can be tested in the socialist movement. There is a section among the socialists which regards the class movement of labor as a driving force in the socialization of industry, This group sees clearly that without the threat of aggression no settlement of the issues is possible. Ordinarily such socialists say that the class struggle is a movement which will end classes. They mean that the self-interest of labor is identical with the interests of a community, that it is a kind of social selfishness. But there are other socialists who speak constantly of working-class government, and they mean just what they say. It is their intention to have the community ruled in the interests of labor. Probe their minds to find out what they mean by labor, and in all honesty you cannot escape the admission that they mean industrial labor alone. These socialists think entirely in terms of the factory population of cities. The farmers, the small shopkeepers, the professional classes, have only a perfunctory interest for them. I know that no end of phrases could be adduced to show the inclusiveness of the word labor, but their intention is what I have tried to describe. They are thinking of government by a factory population. They appeal to history for confirmation. Have not all social changes, they ask, meant the emergence of a new economic class until it dominated society? Did not the French Revolution mean the conquest of the feudal landlord by the middle-class merchant? Why should not the Social Revolution mean the victory of the proletariat over the bourgeoisie? That may be true, but it is no reason for being bullied by it into a tame admission that what has always been must always be. I see no reason for exalting the unconscious failures of other revolutions into deliberate models for the next one. Just because the capacity of aggression in the middle class ran away with things, and failed to fuse into any decent social ideal, is not ground for trying as earnestly as possible to repeat the mistake. The lesson of it all, it seems to me, is this that class interests are the driving forces which keep public life centered upon essentials. They become dangerous to a nation when it denies them, thwarts them, and represses them so long that they burst out and become dominant. Then there is no limit to their aggression until another class appears with contrary interests. The situation might be compared to those hysterias in which a suppressed impulse flares up and rules the whole mental life. Social life has nothing whatever to fear from group interests so long as it doesn't try to play the ostrich in regard to them. So the burden of national crises is squarely upon the dominant classes who fight so foolishly against the emergent ones. That is what precipitates violence, That is what renders social cooperation impossible. That is what makes catastrophes the method of change. The wisest rulers see this. They know that the responsibility for insurrections rests, in the last analysis, upon the unimaginative greed and endless stupidity of the dominant classes. There is something pathetic in the blindness of powerful people when they face a social crisis. Fighting viciously every readjustment which a nation demands, they make their own overthrow inevitable. It is they who turn opposing interests into a class war. Confronted with the deep insurgency of labor, what do capitalists and their spokesmen do? They resist every demand, submit only after a struggle, and prepare a condition of war to the death. When far-sighted men appear in the ruling classes, men who recognize the need of a civilized answer to this increasing restlessness, the rich and the powerful treat them to a scorn and a hatred that are incredibly bitter. The hostility against men like Roosevelt, La Follette, Bryan, Lloyd George, is enough to make an observer believe that the rich of today are as stupid as the nobles of france before the revolution it seems to me that roosevelt never spoke more wisely or as a better friend of civilization than the time when he said at new york city on march twenty nineteen twelve that The woes of France for a century and a quarter have been due to the folly of her people in splitting into the two camps of unreasonable conservatism and unreasonable radicalism. Had pre-revolutionary France listened to men like Turgot and backed them up, all would have gone well. But the beneficiaries of privilege, the Bourbon reactionaries, the short-sighted ultra-conservatives turned down Turgot and then found that instead of him they had obtained Robespierre. They gained twenty years' freedom from all restraint and reform at the cost of the whirlwind of the Red Terror, and in their turn the unbridled extremists of the Terror induced a blind reaction, and so, with convulsion and oscillation from one extreme to another, with alterations of violent radicalism and violent Bourbonism, THE FRENCH PEOPLE WENT THROUGH MISERY TO A SHATTERED GOAL. PROFOUND CHANGES ARE NOT ONLY NECESSARY, BUT HIGHLY DESIRABLE. EVEN IF THIS COUNTRY WERE COMFORTABLY WELL OFF, HEALTHY, PROSPEROUS, AND EDUCATED, MEN WOULD GO ON INVENTING AND CREATING OPPORTUNITIES TO AMPLIFY THE POSSIBILITIES OF LIFE. THESE INVENTIONS WOULD MEAN RADICAL TRANSFORMATIONS, for we are bent upon establishing more in this nation than a minimum of comfort. A liberal people would welcome social inventions as gladly as we do mechanical ones. What it would fear is a hard-shell resistance to change, which brings it about explosively. Catastrophes are disastrous to radical and conservative alike. They do not preserve what was worth maintaining— They allow a deformed and often monstrous perversion of the original plan. The emancipation of the slaves might teach us the lesson that an explosion followed by reconstruction is satisfactory to nobody. Statesmanship would go out to meet a crisis before it had become acute. The thing it would emphatically not do is to dam up an insurgent current until it overflowed the countryside— Fight labor's demands to the last ditch, and there will come a time when it seizes the whole of power, makes itself sovereign, and takes what it used to ask. That is a poor way for a nation to proceed. For the insurgent become master is a fanatic from the struggle, and, as George Santayana says, he is only too likely to redouble his effort after he has forgotten his aim. Nobody need waste his time debating whether or not there are to be great changes. That is settled for us, whether we like it or not. What is worth debating is the method by which change is to come about. Our choice, it seems to me, lies between a blind push and a deliberate leadership, between thwarting movements until they master us, and domesticating them until they are answered. When Roosevelt formed the Progressive Party on a platform of social reform, he crystallized a deep unrest, brought it out of the cellars of resentment into the agora of political discussion. He performed the real task of a leader, a task which has essentially two dimensions. By becoming part of the dynamics of unrest, he gathered a power of effectiveness. By formulating a program for insurgency, HE TRANSLATED IT INTO TERMS OF PUBLIC SERVICE. WHAT Roosevelt DID AT THE MIDDLE-CLASS LEVEL, THE SOCIALISTS HAVE DONE AT THE PROLETARIAN. THE WORLD HAS BEEN SLOW TO RECOGNIZE THE WORK OF THE SOCIALIST PARTY IN TRANSMUTING A DUMB MUTTERING INTO A CIVILIZED PROGRAM. IT HAS FOUND AN INTELLIGENT OUTLET FOR FORCES THAT WOULD OTHERWISE BE PURELY CATACLYSMIC. THE TRUTH OF THIS HAS BEEN TESTED RECENTLY in the appearance of the direct actionists. They are men who have lost faith in political socialism. Why? Because, like all other groups, the socialists tend to become routineers, to slip into an easy reiteration. The direct actionists are a warning to the socialist party that its tactics and its program are not adequate to domesticating the deepest unrest of labor. Within that party, therefore, a leadership is required which will ride the forces of syndicalism and use them for a constructive purpose. The brilliant writer of the Notes of the Week in the English New Age has shown how this might be done. He has fused the insight of the syndicalist with the plans of the collectivists under the name of Guild Socialism. His plan calls for co-management of industry by the State and the labor union. It steers a course between exploitation by a bureaucracy in the interests of the consumer, the socialist danger, and oppressive monopolies by industrial unions, the syndicalist danger. I shall not attempt to argue here either for or against the scheme. My concern is with method rather than with special pleadings. The guild socialism of the new age is merely an instance of statesmanlike dealing with a new social force. Instead of throwing up its hands in horror at one over-advertised tactical incident like sabotage, the new age went straight to the creative impulse of the syndicalist movement. Every true craftsman, artist, or professional man knows and sympathizes with that impulse. You may call it a desire for self-direction in labor. The deepest revolt implied in the term syndicalism is against the impersonal, driven quality of modern industry, against the destruction of that pride which alone distinguishes work from slavery. Some such impulse as that is what marks off syndicalism from the other revolts of labor. Our suspicion of the collectivist arrangement is aroused by the picture of a vast state machine so horribly well-regulated that human impulse is utterly subordinated. I believe, too, that the fighting qualities of syndicalism are kept at the boiling point by a greater sense of outraged human dignity than can be found among mere socialists or unionists. The imagination is more vivid— THE HORROR OF CAPITALISM IS NOT ALONE IN THE POVERTY AND SUFFERING IT ENTAILS, BUT IN ITS RUTHLESS DENIAL OF LIFE TO MILLIONS OF MEN. THE MOST CRUEL OF ALL DENIALS IS TO DEPRIVE A HUMAN BEING OF JOYOUS ACTIVITY. SYNDICALISM IS SHOT THROUGH WITH THE ASSERTION THAT AN IMPOSED DRUDGERY IS INTOLERABLE, THAT LABOR, AT A SUBSISTENCE WAGE, AS A COG IN A MEANINGLESS MACHINE, is no condition upon which to found civilization. That is a new kind of revolt, more dangerous to capitalism than the demand for higher wages. You cannot treat the syndicalists like cattle, because forsooth they have ceased to be cattle. The damned wantlessness of the poor, about which Oscar Wilde complained, the cry for a little more fodder, gives way to an insistence upon the chance to be interested in life. To shut the door in the face of such a current of feeling, because it is occasionally exasperated into violence, would be as futile as locking up children because they get into mischief. The mind which rejects syndicalism entirely because of the by-products of its despair has had pearls cast before it in vain. I KNOW THAT syndicalism MEANS A REVISION OF SOME OF OUR PLANS, THAT IT IS AN INTRUSION UPON MANY A GLIB PREJUDICE. BUT A HUMAN IMPULSE IS MORE IMPORTANT THAN ANY EXISTING THEORY. WE MUST NOT THROW AN UNEXPECTED GUEST OUT OF THE WINDOW, BECAUSE NO PLACE IS SET FOR HIM AT TABLE. FOR WE LOSE NOT ONLY THE CHARM OF HIS COMPANY, HE MAY IN ANGER WRECK THE HOUSE. Yet the whole nation can't sit at one table. The politician will object that all human interests can't be embodied in a party program. That is true, truer than most politicians would admit in public. No party can represent a whole nation, although, with the exception of the socialists, all of them pretend to do just that. The reason is very simple— A platform is a list of performances that are possible within a few years. It is concerned with more or less immediate proposals, and in a nation split up by class, sectional and racial interests, these proposals are sure to arouse hostility. No definite industrial and political platform, for example, can satisfy rich and poor, black and white, eastern creditor and western farmer, A party that tried to answer every conflicting interest would stand still, because people were pulling in so many different directions. It would arouse the anger of every group and the approval of its framers. It would have no dynamic power, because the forces would neutralize each other. One comprehensive party platform fusing every interest is impossible and undesirable. What is both possible and desirable is that every group interest should be represented in public life, that it should have spokesmen and influence in public affairs. This is almost impossible today. Our blundering political system is pachydermic in its irresponsiveness. The methods of securing representation are unfit instruments for any flexible use but the United States is evidently not exceptional in this respect. England seems to suffer in the same way. In May 1912, the Daily Mail published a series of articles by H. G. Wells on the labor unrest. Is he not describing almost any session of Congress, when he says that, quote, to go into the House of Commons is to go aside out of the general stream of the community's vitality into a corner where little is learnt and much is concocted, into a specialized assembly which is at once inattentive to and monstrously influential in our affairs. Unquote. Further on, Wells remarks that, quote, the diminishing actuality of our political life is a matter of almost universal comment today. In Great Britain we do not have elections any more. We have rejections. What really happens at a general election is that the party organizations, obscure and secretive conclaves with entirely mysterious funds, appoint about twelve hundred men to be our rulers, and all that we, we so-called self-governing people, are permitted to do is, in a muddled, angry way, to strike off the names of about half these selected gentlemen." A cynic might say that the people can't go far wrong in politics because they can't be very right. Our so-called representative system is unrepresentative in a deeper way than the reformers who talk about the money power imagine. It is empty and thin, a stifling of living currents in the interest of a mediocre regularity. But suppose that politics were made responsive— Suppose that the forces of the community found avenues of expression into public life. Would not our legislatures be cut up into antagonistic parties? Would not the conflicts of the nation be concentrated into one heated hall? If you really represented the country in its government, would you not get its partisanship in a quintessential form? After all, group interests in the nation are diluted by space and time. THE MERE SEPARATION IN CITIES AND COUNTRY PREVENTS THEM FROM FALLING INTO THE PSYCHOLOGY OF THE CROWD. BUT LET THEM ALL BE REPRESENTED IN ONE ROOM BY MEN WHO ARE PROFESSIONALLY INTERESTED IN THEIR constituencies' PREJUDICES, AND WHAT WOULD YOU ACCOMPLISH BUT A DEEPENING OF THE CLEAVAGES? WOULD THE SESSION NOT BECOME AN INTERMINABLE wrangle? NOBODY CAN ANSWER THESE QUESTIONS WITH ANY CERTAINTY. Most prophecies are simply the masquerades of prejudice, and the people who love stability and prefer to let their own well-being alone will see in a sensitive political system little but an invitation to chaos. They will choose facts to adorn their fears. History can be all things to all men. Nothing is easier than to summon the terror, the commune, lynchings in the southern states, as witnesses to the excesses and hysterias of the mob. Those facts will prove the case conclusively to anyone who has already made up his mind on the subject. Absolute Democrats can also line up their witnesses, the conservatism of the Swiss, Wisconsin's successful experiments, the patience and judgment of the Danes. Both sides are remarkably sure that the right is with them, whereas the only truth about which an observer can be entirely certain is that in some places and in certain instances democracy is admittedly successful. There is no absolute case one way or the other. It would be silly from the experience we have to make a simple judgment about the value of direct expression. You cannot lump such a mass of events together and come to a single conclusion about them. IT IS A CRUDE HABIT OF MIND THAT WOULD ATTEMPT IT. YOU MIGHT AS WELL TALK ABSTRACTLY ABOUT THE GOODNESS OR BADNESS OF THIS UNIVERSE, WHICH CONTAINS HAPPINESS, PAIN, EXHILARATION, AND INDIFFERENCE IN A THOUSAND VARYING GRADES AND QUANTITIES. THERE IS NO SUCH THING AS DEMOCRACY. THERE ARE A NUMBER OF MORE OR LESS DEMOCRATIC EXPERIMENTS WHICH ARE NOT SUBJECT TO WHOLESALE EULOGY OR CONDEMNATION. THE QUESTIONS ABOUT THE SUCCESS OF A TRULY REPRESENTATIVE SYSTEM ARE Pseudo-QUESTIONS, AND FOR THIS REASON. SUCCESS IS NOT DUE TO THE SYSTEM. IT DOES NOT FLOW FROM IT AUTOMATICALLY. THE SOURCE OF SUCCESS IS IN THE PEOPLE WHO USE THE SYSTEM. AS AN INSTRUMENT IT MAY HELP OR HINDER THEM, BUT THEY MUST OPERATE IT. GOVERNMENT IS NOT A MACHINE RUNNING ON STRAIGHT TRACKS TO A DESIRED GOAL. It is a human work which may be facilitated by good tools. That is why the achievements of the Swiss may mean nothing whatever when you come to prophesy about the people of New York. Because Wisconsin has made good use of the direct primary, it does not follow that it will benefit the Filipino. It always seems curious to watch the satisfaction of some reform magazines when China or Turkey or Persia imitates the constitutional forms of Western democracies. Such enthusiasts postulate a uniformity of human ability which every fact of life contradicts. Present-day reform lays a great emphasis upon instruments and very little upon the skillful use of them. It says that human nature is all right, that what is wrong is the system— NOW THE EFFECT OF THIS HAS BEEN TO CONCENTRATE ATTENTION ON INSTITUTIONS AND TO SLIGHT MEN. A SMALL STEP FURTHER, INSTITUTIONS BECOME AN END IN THEMSELVES. THEY MAY VIOLATE HUMAN NATURE AS THE TABOO DOES. THAT DOES NOT DISTURB THE INTEREST IN THEM VERY MUCH, FOR BY COMMON CONSENT, REFORMERS ARE TO FIX THEIR MINDS UPON THE SYSTEM. A MACHINE SHOULD BE RUN BY MEN FOR HUMAN USES, the preoccupation with the system lays altogether too little stress on the men who operate it and the men for whom it is run. It is as if you put all your effort into the working of a plough and forgot the farmer and the consumer. I state the case baldly, and contradiction would be easy. The reformer might point to phrases like human welfare, which appear in his writings, and yet the point stands, I believe. The emphasis which directs his thinking bears most heavily upon the mechanics of life, only perfunctorily upon the ability of the men who are to use them. Even an able reformer like Mr. Frederick C. Howe does not escape entirely. A recent book is devoted to a glowing eulogy of Wisconsin, an Experiment in Democracy. In a concluding chapter, Mr. Howe states the philosophy of the experiment. What is the explanation of Wisconsin, he asks? Why has it been able to eliminate corruption, machine politics, and rid itself of the boss? What is the cause of the efficiency, the thoroughness, the desire to serve which animate the state? Why has Wisconsin succeeded where other states have uniformly failed, I think the explanation is simple. It is also perfectly natural. It is traceable to democracy, to the political freedom which had its beginning in the direct primary law, and which has been continuously strengthened by later laws. Some pages later, Wisconsin assumed that the trouble with our politics is not with our people, but with the machinery with which the people work, it has established a line of vision as direct as possible between the people and the expression of their will. The impression Mr. Howe evidently wishes to leave with his readers is that the success of the experiment is due to the instruments rather than to the talent of the people of Wisconsin. That would be a valuable and comforting assurance to propagandists, for it means that other states with the same instruments can achieve the same success. But the conclusion seems to me utterly unfounded. The reasoning is parally like that of the gifted lady amateur who expects to achieve greatness by imitating the paint-box and palette, oils and canvases of an artist. Mr. Howe's own book undermines his conclusions. He begins with an account of La Follette, OF A MAN WITH INITIATIVE AND A CONSTRUCTIVE BENT. THE FORCES OF Follette SET IN MOTION ARE COMMENTED UPON. THE WORK OF VAN HIGHS IS SHOWN. WHAT WISCONSIN HAD WAS LEADERSHIP AND A PEOPLE THAT RESPONDED, INVENTORS AND CONSTRUCTIVE MINDS. THEY FORGED THE DIRECT PRIMARY AND THE STATE UNIVERSITY OUT OF THE IMPETUS WITHIN THEMSELVES. NO DOUBT THEY WERE FORTUNATE IN THEIR CHOICE OF INSTRUMENTS. They made the expression of the people's will direct, yet that will surely is the more primary thing. It makes and uses representative systems, but you cannot reverse the process. A man can manufacture a plough and operate it, but no amount of ploughs will create a man and endow him with skill. All sorts of observers have pointed out that the Western states adopt reform legislation more quickly than the Eastern. Yet no one would seriously maintain that the West is more progressive because it has progressive laws. The laws are a symptom and an aid, but certainly not the cause. Constitutions do not make people. People make constitutions— So the task of reform consists not in presenting a state with progressive laws, but in getting the people to want them. The practical difference is extraordinary. I insist upon it so much because the tendency of political discussion is to regard government as automatic, a device that is sure to fail or sure to succeed. It is sure of nothing. Effort moves it. Intelligence directs it. Its fate is in human hands. End of section 11